0: Amen. Well, it's good to see you here this morning. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture now and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, you should find, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should find one uh, where you are seated, somewhere around you. where You can grab a Bible and follow along. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that uh, in the first half of this year, we have been considering the theme of discipleship. And we recently concluded a series in the Gospel of Matthew on the Beatitudes. And this morning we are going to begin a new series in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 entitled A Model for Discipleship, Instruct, Devote, and Remember. A Model for Discipleship, Instruct, Devote, and Remember. And so through the month of June we're going to be working through Deuteronomy chapter 6 and continuing to consider this theme of discipleship. But our focus this morning is verses 1 through 9 in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'll begin reading for us there in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates." Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, we gather together as your people now to hear from you as you speak to us through your word. So, Lord, be with us by your spirit. Lead and guide this time. Open our minds so that we might understand your word faithfully. And Lord, open our hearts. So that we might embrace it in faith and obedience. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, whenever we take on a new responsibility, whenever we enter a new phase of our lives or careers, if we are to be successful, we often need instruction and teaching. So a high school musician might attend a summer music camp or an aspiring mechanic might enroll in trade school or an engaged couple might sign up for premarital counseling. Or if you start a new job, you might be required to fulfill some uh, on-the-job training. Or if you're on the cusp of retirement, you might schedule an appointment with a financial planner. In all of these areas of life, instruction and teaching are necessary in order for us to understand our roles and to fulfill them successfully. And a similar dynamic is at work in the Christian life. If we are to know what it means to be a Christian, if we are to appreciate the great riches and promises that are ours in Christ, if we are to understand what it means to faithfully live out the Christian life and to successfully fulfill God's will and purpose for our lives, then instruction and teaching are necessary. This is why instruction is such an important part of Christian discipleship. Jesus says as much in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. Jesus' last words to his disciples He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, my friends, understand that we will not get far in our Christian lives. We will not get far in our Christian discipleship without faithful, consistent, biblical instruction and teaching. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And really, the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons delivered by Moses to the people of God. And through these sermons, Moses is discipling the people and preparing them to enter the promised land. And so what we have here in many ways is a model for discipleship designed to equip the people of God to be faithful to God's covenant in a new land. And so there are many parallels between Moses' effort here to equip the people of God in Deuteronomy and what we understand today to be Christian discipleship. So what we're going to do in the month of June is we will look more closely at Moses' model for discipleship in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll see, as I mentioned earlier, that Moses' model for, dis- for discipleship includes instruction, devotion, and remembrance. Now this morning we're going to give special attention to the role of instruction in Moses' model for discipleship. And the main point that I really want us to see in our text this morning is that Moses' model for discipleship includes instruction in the context of the community of faith and instruction in the relational context of the family. Let me repeat that because that's our main point, and I know that a number of you are taking notes. Moses' model for discipleship includes instruction in the community of faith and instruction in the relational context of the family. So, let's look at our passage. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, and let's see these points. First of all, Moses instructs the people in the context of the community of faith. Moses instructs the people in the context of the community of faith. Look there in verses 1-3 through of chapter 6. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk. And honey. Now, as we are reading these words here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we can imagine that the people of God are gathered on the plains of Moab in anticipation of entering into the promised land. And Moses stands before the people of God and he declares these words in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. So there you see it. Moses has been commanded by God to teach and instruct the people. And he says that I've been commanded by God to teach you. And the word you there, that pronoun, is actually in the plural in the original language. So it's referring to the gathered assembly as a whole, the people of Israel. So this is God's charge to Moses to teach the people his commandment, his statutes, and rules. One author has said, quote, the purpose of Deuteronomy is stated here. Moses is to teach the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments of God to the people. The purpose of Deuteronomy is educational. It is to teach the people of God how to behave in every area of life, end of quote. And so what we observe here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and really throughout this book is that Moses is teaching, He's instructing. He's educating the people of God in the context of the community of faith. And this practice is critical to our growth and learning as disciples of Jesus. Now, we might wonder, well, what does this look like today? Well, it looks a lot like what we're doing right now. It looks like gathering as the people of God to hear and to be instructed in the Word of God. You know, sometimes folks think of discipleship only in terms of one-on-one relationships. So someone might think about discipleship and say, well, yeah, yes, I'm involved in discipleship. There's this mature Christian that meets with me once a week, and we read the Bible together. Or someone might say, yes, I'm involved in discipleship. I meet with this younger believer once every two weeks, and we're reading a Christian book together, and we're praying together. And they think, that's discipleship. And in one sense, that is discipleship. It's a very important aspect of discipleship. It's very, significant, it's crucial, it's important. But let me caution you as well that there is a danger in thinking that that is the sum total of discipleship. You see, sometimes folks can so prize this relational dynamic and aspect of discipleship that they conclude that they don't need the church. They don't need gathered worship. They don't need the preaching of the Word of God. All they need is their one-on-one time with their disciple or their time with their small group. But what we see here in our text is that the gathered people of God being taught the Word of God in the community of faith is a pattern that is established in the Old Testament and is carried through into the New Testament. And so as we think about discipleship, we do well to remember that a critical component of our discipleship as Christians is gathered worship. A critical component of our discipleship is the preaching and teaching of God's Word in the community of faith. So, that we should not conceive of our discipleship as Christians apart from the local church and the proclamation of God's word. Now, notice in these verses as well that Moses goes on to explain that he teaches the people people God's word for the sake of practical application and for the sake of prosperous living. Notice, he teaches them God's word for the sake of practical application. You see there in chapter 6, verse 1, He says that He teaches them the Word so that they might do it, so that they might obey it. Look there in verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that, here's the purpose, you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So it is true that the proclamation of God's Word includes instruction and teaching, that it's intended to be educational. But it is not merely educational, right? It is intended to be transformational. So when we gather together to hear God's Word and to be instructed in God's Word, we're not just looking for information. We're trusting that through God's Word, God will transform us and change us. And so Moses says here that he teaches The people of God, God's commandments, and God's Word in order that they might do them, that they might obey them. Notice also that as it relates to this idea of practical application, Moses teaches the people of God, God's Word, in order that they might fear the Lord. Look there in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. Here it is, verse 2. "...that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life." Now, this is very practical as well, right? Moses says, I'm teaching you this word, I'm teaching you these commandments, so that you might fear the Lord. Now, to fear the Lord does not mean that we live in perpetual terror of God. Rather, it means that we live before the Lord with a disposition of reverence and honor. And what does that look like? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, Moses actually tells us here in the text, right? He says that we would fear the Lord our God, here it is, by keeping His statutes and His commandments. When we fear the Lord, when we honor Him, when we reverence Him, we will be inclined to obey Him. The author of Hebrews begins the book of Hebrews with this axiom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that if we want biblical knowledge, if we want biblical wisdom that results in transformation, it begins with the fear of of the Lord. And the author of Proverbs begins with this axiom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then it's interesting because then in the rest of the book of Proverbs, he tells us in about a million different creative and compelling ways that choices have consequences. That our actions will determine our results. That our decisions will affect our outcomes. So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, we read, "...whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm." So who you decide to spend time with, who you choose to be close with, is going to affect your character. You see, your, your choices have consequences. Your actions will determine certain outcomes." In other words, what the author of Proverbs is saying is we do not live in a godless world in which we may act as we please and then expect the outcomes we desire. Rather, we are to fear God by recognizing Him for who He is. That He is the sovereign Lord. That He rules and reigns over this moral universe. And that if we are to live a life that is prosperous and we do well in this life, then it will be by fearing Him, by living in submission to Him, by acknowledging that this world works best when we submit to His ways. So here we see that Moses is teaching the people of God the Word of God for the sake of practical application, so that they might fear the Lord and so that they might obey His commandments. And Moses is doing this teaching in the community of faith. But notice, he also teaches them the Word, not only for the sake of practical application, but also for the sake of prosperous living. You see this in verse 2. Moses says that he teaches them the Word of God so that their days may be long. We'll begin in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life. Here it is. And that your days may be long. Now, this is a principle that we see uh, repeated in Scripture. And the idea here is that genuine, that generally speaking, obedience to God's commands results in life and length of days. And if you doubt this principle, just consider how many lives, how many families, how many churches have been sapped of their vitality, have come to a premature end as a result of the devastating effects of sin. What we see here is that when we turn from sin and we walk in obedience, we spare ourselves so much sorrow and pain, and we enjoy the blessing of vitality and life. But Moses goes on to say that not only is he teaching them for the sake Uh, for the purpose of them experiencing length of days, but also He teaches them so that it may go well with them. This also relates to prosperous living. Look there in verse 3. Moses says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. So not only to receive this teaching, but to obey it, to do it. Why? That it may go well with you. This is a theme that actually occurs uh, repeatedly in chapter 6. It's mentioned several times. And we see, especially in verses 18 and 19, later on in the chapter, what it means in the immediate context that things would go well for the people of Israel. Look there in verse 18. Moses says, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, here it is, that it may go well with you. And what does that mean? And that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. So here we see in the immediate context that what it means that things will go well for them is that they will be able to possess the land that God has promised to them. And their ability to possess the land was dependent upon their commitment to do and obey God's commandments. Of course, we see this played out again and again in the Old Testament's record of Israel's history. So as it relates to prosperous living, Moses is teaching the people of God the Word of God in order that they might experience length of days, in order that things might go well with them, and then also in order that they might multiply greatly. Look there again in verse 3. Moses says, Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. Here it is. And that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you and a land flowing with milk and honey. So one of the blessings here that Moses says will come to the people as a result of their obedience to God's Word is that the Lord will bless them with families, with children. They will multiply greatly in a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Actually, that word flowing there can be translated gushing, a land gushing with milk and honey. This is actually in the Old Testament a favorite description of the land of Canaan that they were about to enter into. I remember when I was a young boy and uh, would hear this description of the land of Canaan, I, was, uh, I would think about it literally, like maybe, maybe the land of Canaan really does have rivers flowing with milk and honey. You know, I didn't know really how to conceive of that. Kind of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, the rivers of chocolate and lickable wallpaper. But of course, as one author states, this expression is intended to be figurative. It's intended to symbolize the lush and rich land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan was especially rich and lush in comparison to where the people of God had been. 400 years in slavery in the desert in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the barren wilderness. And now God was graciously granting them this lush and rich land of Canaan. A land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses says as he teaches the people of God the Word of God, he says as you receive this Word, you will experience prosperous living. Your days will be long. Things will go well with you. You will multiply greatly in a good land. Now, let me just clarify here that when we speak of the prosperity that results from obeying God's Word, we are in no way affirming the abuses of what is known as the prosperity gospel. Some of you know what I'm speaking about, others you may not know at all, but just in short, an example would be like the TV preachers that we see sometimes who promise us no sickness and extravagant wealth an unlimited success, if we will just contribute financially to their ministry, right? That is not the kind of prosperity that Moses is speaking of here. Those individuals are false teachers who distort the Scriptures for their own selfish gain and out of a desire to get rich themselves. However, we should acknowledge that sometimes out of a fear of the false teaching of the prosperity gospel, we fail to acknowledge and to trust that obedience to God's Word really does result in tangible blessings and rewards in this life. I mean, just consider a few. Obedience to God's Word oftentimes will lead to a more stable home, a good reputation, a strong worth ethic, Obedient children, lasting friendships, and we could go on and on. There are many, many blessings that come to us in this life as we seek to obey and honor God's Word. So Moses is teaching the people the Word of God for the sake of practical application that they might do the Word, they might fear the Lord, And for the sake of prosperous living, that they might know some of the benefits of what it means to walk in God's ways and walk in obedience. And how do we learn God's commands? How do we learn His ways? How do we come to fear Him and obey Him as we ought? How do we grow in faith so that we might experience the blessings of obedience? we must be discipled in His Word. We must be instructed. We must be taught. And one of the primary ways that God would have us to be discipled in His Word is through hearing and receiving the proclamation of God's Word in gathered worship within the community of faith. So the first point is that we are to receive instruction from God's Word in the community of faith. Second point, fathers instruct their children in the relational context of the family. Fathers instruct their children in the relational context of the family. Look there in verses 4-9. through Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Verses 4 and 5, what we see there is, is what is known as the Shema. In fact, verse 4 and 5 constitute some of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. Even today, observant Jews will recite the Shema, verses 4 and 5 here, uh, at least twice a day. And so these are very important verses. I say that to say we're not going to look at these verses this morning. We're going to come back and look at these verses next week. But our focus this morning will be on verses seven through nine. And notice that Moses declares here in verse seven, You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, why did I not label this second point, Parents, instruct your children in the relational context of the family? Because surely that's true. Fathers and mothers bear a responsibility to teach their children the Scriptures. So why do I label this point fathers instruct your children in the relational context of the family? Because what we see here, as we see in many other places in Scripture, is that the father has a particular responsibility to initiate and to ensure that this type of biblical, spiritual instruction is taking place in the home. Let me just show you this from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In verse 7, when Moses says, You shall teach them, the pronoun you there in the original language is a masculine, singular pronoun. He's speaking to fathers. You, fathers, shall teach them. And in fact, the them there is actually the Hebrew word bain. It's the word for sons. You shall teach your sons. This is even more clear in chapter 6, verse 2. If you look at chapter 6, verse 2, Moses says that you may fear the Lord your God, you, and again that's a masculine singular, he's speaking to the fathers, and your son and your son's son. So Moses is specifically here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 addressing fathers and sons who will one day become fathers because they serve as the functional head or representative of the family. And consequently, they bear a special responsibility to ensure that their family is present when the people of God are gathered for worship that their children are learning and growing in their knowledge of the Scriptures, that their home is a place where they pray with and for one another. Now, some today, I know, question whether fathers are even necessary in the home. But, of course, we know now after years of sociological studies and gathering data that when fathers are absent from the home, children are more likely to end up in poverty. They are more likely to drop out of school. They're more likely to be addicted to drugs. They're more likely to have a child out of wedlock. They're more likely to end up in prison. Now, of course, thankfully, there are many, many situations in which a father is absent, and none of these tragic events occur. But it is obvious from the teaching of Scripture as well as from practical experience that God has created the home to function best when a mother and a father are present. And when a father is present and a father takes seriously this spiritual responsibility in his home, then of course the entire family benefits, the wife and the children, both sons and daughters. So there are some today whose rowing cry, and maybe you've heard this before, is down with the patriarchy. And so how are we to respond to that? Well, I think we respond to that by saying, well, yes and no. It depends on what you mean. If you mean by down with the patriarchy, down with selfish, harsh, passive, abusive men, then yes we can affirm, down with the selfish, sinful patriarchy. But, if you mean down with loving, humble, servant-hearted, courageous, male initiative and leadership in the home, then we would say no. God has created families so that families glorify Him most and function best when godly fathers are present, and when godly fathers fulfill their responsibility to ensure that their families are pursuing the Lord and growing in the knowledge and love of His Word. And so fathers understand, Moses is speaking to you this morning. Sons who will one day become fathers... Understand, Moses is speaking to you this morning, and he is saying, Fathers, you shall teach God's word diligently to your children. It is part of your job description as a Christian father, and to fail to do so is disobedience to God and a dereliction of duty. Understand, it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be as simple as reading to them a story from a good children's Bible at night or reading from a family devotion book when the family sits down to eat dinner together. But fathers, you do have a particular responsibility to ensure that this ongoing instruction and teaching is taking place in your home for the sake of your children, for the sake of your family. Now, of course, I know that there are some women here this morning who might say, and maybe even with a broken heart, what if there's not a man in the home? What if I'm a single mom? or What if I'm married, but honestly my husband just has no interest in spiritual things and shows no desire to spiritually invest in our family? Well, let me encourage you, godly mother... Don't underestimate the powerful influence of a godly mother. God loves to take less than ideal situations and demonstrate His power and His grace through our weakness. Let me encourage you, godly mothers, to teach your children the Scriptures and trust God to do the rest. Remember when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy the young promising pastor, and Paul is recalling the origins of Timothy's faith. And when Paul recalls the origins of Timothy's faith, he never mentions Timothy's father. We don't know. Timothy's father at that point may have been dead. He may have simply been absent from the home, or perhaps he didn't have an interest in spiritual things. But Paul does not mention Timothy's father. Rather, he mentions Timothy's mother and grandmother. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I, rem- I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So listen, moms, be a faithful Lois. Be a faithful Eunice. And God may very well raise up a Timothy. So here we see that as this instruction is to be, take place in the relational context of the family, that a father bears a special responsibility to make sure this is taking place in the home. But then notice also that the instruction that takes place in the home is not merely to be formal instruction, but is to go beyond that. So look there in verses 7 and 9, and we read these words. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, notice the primary verbs here that Moses, is, Moses uses here in his instruction. Verse 7 They are to teach them. That is, teach God's commands, teach God's Word diligently. Verse 7 again, they are to talk of them. Verse 8, they are to bind them. Verse 9, they are to write them. So let's look at each one of these briefly. They are to teach them diligently. Now this is what we've been talking about primarily this morning. This is kind of what we think of as formal teaching or instruction in the home. We might think of a family devotion in the morning before everyone's out the door or reading a Bible story with our child before they go to bed or determining as a family that we're going to memorize a particular passage of Scripture together. But notice that the instruction that's to take place in the home is not limited to this type of formal teaching and instruction. Moses goes on to say in verse 7, "...they are to talk of them." When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now when Moses says when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, I think that covers the entirety of a day, right? And that's Moses' intention. Moses is saying when you sit down for a meal together as a family. Or when you're driving your children to t-ball practice or when you're getting ready, your children ready for bed at night, or when you're driving them to school in the morning, all of these are opportunities in which we can speak about the Lord and His Word. And so throughout the day, we can be intentional to take some of these opportunities to naturally share with our spouse, with our children, what we're reading in our Bible reading. Or maybe what the Lord is teaching us through a friend. Or maybe something that we learned, a fresh insight we gained through Bible study at church or sermon on Sunday. You see, what Moses is getting at here is that the Word of God so permeates our minds and permeate our hearts that it naturally overflows into our conversations and interactions with one another, and especially with one another and our families. So they are to teach them. They are to talk of them. Notice in verse 8, they are to bind them. They are to bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, we talked about this actually in the series that we did on the Beatitudes, but some Jews desired to uh, very literally fulfill Moses' instructions here, and as a result, they created what came to be known as phylacteries. Phylacteries are small leather boxes that contained small pieces of parchment, and on those pieces of parchment there were Scripture verses written. And so those small pieces of parchment would be placed inside the small leather box, and then it would be attached to either their hand or their forehead. So it would be a sign on their hand and its frontlets between their eyes. Now, Jesus actually criticizes the Pharisees for this practice and the way they played this out. But I don't believe we need to begin to use phylacteries, again, to fulfill Moses' words here. I don't even know that that was Moses' intention originally. Rather, I think the idea here is that we are to act and live in such a way that we keep God's words before us at all times, as though it's on our hands and before our eyes, There's many ways we can do this. We can read the Word in the morning and then revisit it in the evening before we go to bed. We can memorize Scripture and recall it at different times during the day. There's actually a Fighter Verses app that you can get for free that's produced by Desiring God that is excellent for Scripture memory. We can listen to an audio version of the Bible like John Ross's Commuter Bible, and at different times, listen to that during the day. By giving these examples, understand this, I am not intending to overwhelm you. None of us could do all these things. And I want to make clear as well, none of these things that I have mentioned are specifically mandated in Scripture. Rather, I give you these examples so that we might acknowledge that there are so many ways that we can honor the spirit of Moses' instruction here. And we need to consider these various ways and then choose those methods that work best for our lives and enable us to consistently keep God's Word before us. So they are to teach them. They are to talk of them. They are to bind them. Notice also they are to write them. Look there in verse 9. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, for centuries, many Jews have attempted to honor Moses' words here by writing passages of Scripture on pieces of paper and then putting those pieces of paper in a container, and then that container was attached to the doorposts of their house. This is known as a mezuzah, the container that's attached to the house with the Scripture passages inside. In fact, it's still common today for Jews to place a mezuzah at the entrance of their home or even on the door of their car or the entrance of a hotel. Now, some of you might say, well, that's a strange practice. I would never do anything like that. But actually, many Christians observe similar practices. You might have a favorite passage of Scripture painted on your coffee mug. Or you might have a Bible verse Framed and hung on the wall in your house. Or you might have a passage of scripture printed on a t shirt. Or your favorite verse on your home screen on your computer. Again, it's not to say that any of these practices are biblically mandated or that we should observe all of these things, but rather the idea is that we should be diligent in ways that are effective and appropriate in our lives to keep God's word before us. And that can be expressed in all kinds of different ways. Notice that Moses says here that you are to write them on your doorpost, but then he goes on to say, and you are to write them on your gates. Now, the reference here to gates is not to an individual house, but rather to the gates of a town or a city. And so, if we were to think about modern examples, we would recognize that these words have inspired, for example, churches to etch Scripture verses in the walls of their church, right? Even if you walk around the buildings here at Crawford Avenue, you will see that years ago there were Christians that came before us that had Bible verses etched into the stone, the sides of some of the buildings here at the church. A verse like this has also inspired the practice of publicly presenting the Ten Commandments in museums or in local courthouses, The idea here is that we should act in such a way that we keep the Word of God before us. And so what Moses says here is that as we disciple, as we instruct, as we teach in the family, that fathers bear a special responsibility to do so, and that as we do so, this instruction should be formal in teaching— but it also should be informal in our talk and conversation and also in placing Scripture before us and before our eyes so that we are constantly reminded of its truth. Notice also that Moses is emphasizing here that this type of instruction and teaching is especially to take place in the relational context of the family. Now, why would Moses be interested in this? Why would Moses be interested in this instruction especially taking place within the family? Well, because the family is, in fact, so relational. And Moses intends not only for the Word to be taught, but rather for it to be lived and worked out together in the context of the relationship. And the family is uniquely designed for this type of life-on-life discipleship to take place. Because as families, we spend so much time together, right? Sometimes we might say too much time together. But it provides a unique opportunity. In fact, it's hard to imagine a more ideal context than the family in which all the little nooks and crannies of life can be filled with the Word of God. And so parents, let me encourage you, fathers, mothers, Life is so busy, and I know that there is so much going on, and there's so much that threatens to fill our schedules and overwhelm our time. But fathers and mothers, do not miss this unique opportunity to instruct your children in the Word of God in the relational context of your family. Now, some of you might say, well, I'm single, Maybe you're a high school student or a college student. Maybe you've never been married. Maybe you're older but never been married, or maybe you're divorced. You might read these verses here. You say, well, is there any application for me? You're talking about the relational context of the family, that this is the ideal situation in which discipleship takes place. Well, yes, there is application here for you. This principle can be extrapolated out and applied to the way that you pursue discipleship. In fact, remember that the two most effective disciples in the New Testament were both single Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And their discipleship was so effective, not because they neglected this relational, familial principle, but rather because they embraced it. Jesus was never married, Jesus never had children. But he lived with his disciples as though they were family. They ate together. They slept together. They did ministry together. They were together night and day. And he invested and poured his life into them. Or when Paul, the Apostle Paul, spoke to his understudies, Paul sometimes referred to himself as their, as his, as their father in their, in their faith. And sometimes He addressed them as children and sons in the faith. And so, at one level, for all of us, no matter where we might find ourselves in our lives, our discipleship should be relational. And that since we should aspire in all our discipleship relationships, not only to convey information, to teach and to instruct, but at some level, to share life With those in whom we are investing. It is Moses teaches us here. It is this type of instruction and teaching in a relational context that results in true life change and spiritual growth. So, Moses' model for discipleship includes instruction in the context of the community of faith and instruction in the relational context. Of the family. In a few moments, we're going to take communion together. And as we prepare to do so, I just, as we've been thinking about discipleship this morning, I want to remind you that we cannot grow as a disciple, nor can we know the joy of discipling others, unless we ourselves are truly a disciple of Jesus. And so as we conclude, I know that some of you this morning might be wondering, well, how do I become a disciple of Jesus? And so I just want to speak to that briefly. To become a disciple of Jesus, first you must acknowledge that you are a sinner and need of God's forgiveness and grace. You must turn from your commitment to sin, and you must trust that Jesus died on the cross taking the punishment that you deserve for your sin. And that then he was raised to deliver you from eternal death and to give you the gift of eternal life. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, that he died for you, that he was raised from the dead to give you eternal life, if you confess that you are a sinner and turn from your sins and trust in him, then know this, my friends, he will save you, he will forgive you of your sins and He will set you on the path of Christian discipleship, not only to follow Him as a disciple, but in time, God will use you to disciple and impact the lives of others for Jesus' sake. So, let me encourage you this morning. Don't just hear the instruction and teaching of God's Word, but do it Fear the Lord and do it. Turn from your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus and follow Him in Christian discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that The privilege of being a disciple of Jesus and the privilege of investing in the lives of others and discipling others is a gift that is given to us entirely by grace. Lord, we thank You for the Lord Jesus and for His perfect life. We thank You for His death on the cross for our sins. We thank You for His resurrection from the dead, and we acknowledge that it is only by His perfect work of redemption and salvation that we can be His disciples, and that then we can know the joy of calling others into the discipleship and investing in them. Lord, we pray that as we have heard Your Word this morning, that we would truly receive it into our hearts and that we would obey it and do it. Lord, help us to be faithful, to commit ourselves to learning and growing in the knowledge of Your Word, and then instructing others in Your Word, even as we think about our families. May our families be marked by Christian discipleship. Lord, as we come to take communion now. We pray, Lord, that You would minister to our own hearts, that we would be reminded, Lord, of the great sacrifice that Jesus offered on our behalf so that we might experience the forgiveness of sins and know Your grace. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.